This morning, let's uh, stand and read Romans chapter 4 together. And God's Word says in Romans chapter 4, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is done. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as, as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessings the blessing on the man whom God credits righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abram as righteousness. How then is it, was it credited? While, it was, while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised. That righteousness, that righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of circumcision to those who are not only of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham which he had while uncircumcised. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is also no violation. For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace." so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, A father of many nations have I made you, in the presence of him who he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which he had spoken. So so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised he was able also to perform. Therefore it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification can be seated. So, how many of you all have heard of William William Borden? Anyone? Okay, Isaac, Mom. Anyone else? William Borden? Maybe? 
Maybe not. William Borden grew up in Chicago, Illinois. His parents were extremely wealthy. They became rich because of silver mining in Colorado. He was not related to the condensed milk family, and that's how he would convince people that he wasn't rich. He would say, I'm not related to the condensed milk family. (laughs) So he grew up in Chicago, and his mother got saved at what ended up being Moody Church. And one day, William went with her, and he was saved at the preaching of R.A. Torrey. And he graduated high school at 16. So his parents, being wealthy, they gave him a, a trip around the world. How many people would, would have liked to have that? <laughs> so they, he traveled around the world at 16 years old, and as he was traveling around the world, he developed, as a Christian, a burden for the lost. He saw the need for the lost. And so he came back, and he told his dad, I don't want the money that is due me. I don't need this. I'm going to go serve the Lord overseas. So then he, goes, he went to Yale in 1905. Back then, Yale was not what it is today. It was actually a Christian seminary. Actually, most colleges and universities in the United States started as seminaries. Um, so when he got there, he realized and seeing the student body and the, the people who were leading, he He's, he said he just saw moral weakness and sin-ruined lives. So him and a friend started praying together and studying the Bible together every morning. And then the next week, a third person. The next week, the fourth. By the end of his freshman year, there were 150 students doing this together. By the time he graduated as a senior, there were 1,000 students out of 1,300 doing this every day. And during his time at Yale, he also started a a mission to the homeless and the widows and the orphans of New Haven, Connecticut. And so he was a, a man who lived his faith. He lived what he said he believed. And he didn't waste his time. He during that time he was also on the board of China Inland Mission. He he was doing all these different things. Right before he left for for China, he donated $800,000 to China Inland Mission. Um, but he was constantly living his life for Christ. And while he was at Yale, he, he felt the call specifically to the Muslim-speaking Chinese in um, the western, northwesternmost region of China, which actually is still a problem today. And so he made a commitment to go, and so, so that he could communicate with them, they spoke Arabic. He went to um, Egypt to learn Arabic and to practice preaching the gospel in, in Arabic. While there, he died of spinal meningitis not long after being there at age 25. And it seems like a wasted life to many, right? 
He gave his whole life to serving Christ. And it seems like, well, maybe, maybe his life was not worthwhile. Maybe he missed it. Maybe, maybe something was really wrong with him. But was it wasted? The influence that he had at Yale... He then went to Princeton and got a doctorate degree there before he went, and so he was an influence there. Even some faculty said that he had a great influence on them spiritually. All the homeless people and things that were being reached through the ministry, the thousands of dollars he gave to China Inland Mission to show his faith. Interestingly, his mother was there when he died. She had come to visit, and they were going to go hiking in the mountains of Lebanon. And when he died, they put this on his tombstone. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation of such a life. That's an epitaph I wouldn't mind on my grave. And later on, when they restored, years later, they took a quote that has supposedly come out of his Bible where he said, no reserve, no retreats, no regrets. And that last line was, has been said to have been said by him when he was on his deathbed in Egypt. He didn't know when his life would end, but he gave it all. He gave everything. He, he surrendered all in faith. You could not explain his life without faith in Christ. And that is what we see today in Romans chapter 4. You want to know what Abraham's epitaph was? Justified by faith. If you want to describe the life of Abraham and his descendants, justified by faith. That's how we define it. And that's why I wanted us to see this young man. It doesn't matter where our life ends. If we're in faith... That is the only explanation we need. That should be a question that, what's going to be on my epitaph? Is it going to be something like uh, one guy just had in, he was an actor, so he just said so-and-so in, like a credit of a movie? Is that what you want on your epitaph? Or some joke, so many comedians putting jokes on their epitaph? No. It should be something like, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation of such a life. So, we've seen the last few weeks, Paul is making a point. He's making a point that no one is righteous. No one can do anything without God. And that Christ came... He came to take the wrath of God that was due us, and He took it on Himself. Why? Because He loved us. Because God loved us. John 3.16 is a demonstration of God's love. It's not the, the depth. When it says so much, God loves so much, so much there is actually meaning the demonstration of God's love. God demonstrated His love in sending His Son because there was only one way of justification through faith in Jesus Christ. The propitiation, the the wrath that He took in our place. So, 
We have no boasting. That's what it says in verse 27 of chapter 3. And, and he, he talks, he asks the question in verse 20, 27. I believe he's answering it in verse 4 and in ver, or chapter 4. In chapter 4, he's giving us Abraham's eulogy and an epitaph. I believe. But he's using it as an example to us of what faith looks like. And how it should be seen. So if you look in verse 27 of chapter 3, he says, Where then is boasting? Is it excluded? By what kind of law? Of works? Not by a law of of faith. No, sorry. No, but by a law of faith. For you maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, is one. We do then, do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. So he's asked this question, he's going to answer it in Abraham. He's going to say, look, Jews, you're looking back to Abraham as your example. Well, here's, here's what he is. He says, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? Like, what has Abraham found? What is it that he found? And it says, verse 2, For if Abraham was justified by works, he would have something to boast about, right? He has something to boast about. But not before God. He's like, I've already told you, <laughs> no one can be justified by works. It's impossible. So, Yeah, Abraham might have been able to convince somebody else that he was a righteous man on his own, but he didn't. He wasn't. He was trusting in God for his justification because he knew that he could only be just in God's way. Before God, he was had nothing to boast about because he knew where his righteousness came from. And Paul says in verse 3, for what does the Scripture say? He's going, he, I'm going to prove that what I just said is right. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And I want us to see this. Turn to Genesis chapter 15. Actually, let's start in chapter 12, because... I want us to see the story of what happens, okay? So in Genesis chapter 12, we have the original calling of Abraham. You know, up to that point, you see uh, Babel happening, and then you see the descendants of Shem up to Abraham. And um, so then in verse 12, it says, Now the Lord, or chapter 12, 12, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives, from your father's house to a land which I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So here's the promise. This is the first time God promises anything. Let me ask you, are there any conditions here first? No. 
God doesn't say, I will bless you if you do this, that, and the other. No. So the blessing, the promise precedes any requirement. But how did Abraham demonstrate he had faith? What does verse 4 say? So Abraham went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. He obeyed God. His faith created works. That doesn't mean he was... The promise didn't come because he worked. The promise came because he believed and put action to what he believed. So turn to Genesis 15. So from that point on, we we see a story talking about Abraham and Lot. And... um, if you go back to Genesis chapter 15, we see these words. And after these things, so after he had met with Melchizedek, had given Melchizedek a tithe, and received the blessing of Melchizedek, it said, After these things, the, son, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward will be very great. Abraham said, Abram said, O Lord God, what will you do, give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to Abram, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Now, look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And this is where we see the quote in verse in Romans. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. God did not say you have to do something, right? He said, believe. This is the truth. This is what I'm going to say. Believe. And that, that is something that applies to our salvation, to every part of the promises of God. If, if we are going to believe, it must be on God's Word. It's not on the opinion of of someone who thinks they know the Bible. Maybe they do. Maybe they're right, and we should. But just because somebody thinks they know something does not mean we need to check the Word. Don't believe me. Don't believe anyone who stands behind this pulpit and preaches who is not teaching the Word. So Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. This idea of credit is, can also be reckoned or to take inventory. So when God looked at the inventory that Abraham held, he added righteousness to it completely. It wasn't something he had in himself. It was given by God. It was counted to him. Because he believed. It wasn't because he, he did the right thing. Yes, he did go to the promised land. 
But he did it in faith. He didn't say, okay, if I do this, then God will bless me. No, because God had already said, I will bless you. And then Paul explains this idea to us in verse 4. So my first point is faith is alone the means of our justification or our righteousness. Works will not do. Why? Verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. So the idea here is, if you work for me, and you get to the end of the day, and I told you I would pay you $100, is that a gift or a wage? That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, look, if someone is working for something, it's not of grace, because the, wor- the word here, favor, is actually the word also translated grace or gift. It can be both. So, for example, if I want to give my kids a gift, I don't say, oh, you've got to work for this. You've got to, you know, do this. Now, it's different with food. You want a cookie? You've got to eat all your food, Right? <laughs> You, you want milk with your Pop-Tarts? Well, you need to eat your Pop-Tart first, because I know you won't eat the Pop-Tart once you get the milk. But that's a different, that's, maybe I need to change it so that they understand justification by faith better. But, <laughs> uh, but anyways, when we give gifts, like I don't give a gift to my wife and say, oh, now you got to do something. you got to do something first before I give the gift. No, it, it's out of the abundance of our heart. In the same way, God is not giving us righteousness because we worked our way into it god is not giving us something because we could work it's not what is due us that is so important for us to see it is not god does not owe us a debt when we do good it is not a wage that is due us verse five and this is how we see it but to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness. Guess what? God doesn't justify the godly. He only justifies the ungodly. You know why? Because there aren't any godly people who have walked the face of the earth. God doesn't need to. What did Jesus say? I came to heal the sick. The sick don't need a physician, or the the well don't need a physician. The sick do in the same way. We're all sick. This word ungodly is the lawless ones. We are lawless without the law. We have no desire to follow God. And so he's made that point in chapter 3. If that's not evidently clear, then we haven't been listening. So he alone justifies the godly. God does it. This is not... Some outside force. This is God justifying us, ungodly, lawless men and women, because He wants to, because He loves us. His faith, the Abraham, the, the faith of him who believes, is credited as righteousness. There's an exchange, there's 
The thing is, faith comes from God too. It's all of grace. How many of you all believed until God put a change in your heart? When He, he brought His Spirit and started to awaken faith in you, it wasn't you. You didn't say, oh, tomorrow I'm going to go have faith in God. No. As well as in five minutes. You, you cannot conjure up faith. There are many people that we know who have conjured up faith and are no longer walking with the Lord anymore. They didn't understand faith. They thought it was something that they could make. But it's something that's given. And when we exercise that faith, God credits it to us as righteousness. I mean, Abraham... I think Abraham is such a great example because Abraham was a pagan. God didn't come to Abraham and say, oh, yep, Abraham's a good, he's a good, solid Christian. There weren't Christians back then, but he's a solid, godly person. And I'm going to, I'm going to call him. No, he was a pagan. He didn't serve the true and living God. God came to him in his pagan, wicked ways and called him out, gave him faith to believe, and then credited it that faith that he gave him to him as righteousness. And that then brings the question, how is that possible? How is it possible that we can be credited righteousness? And that goes back to the end of chapter 3, where Jesus has to pay the price for our righteousness, our justification. Jesus has to pay it because God is constantly just. So he, God becomes the justifier and the judge. So our righteousness is credited due to faith, not to our works. We weren't owed anything but wrath, right? Remember that? We, we actually were due the wrath of God, but God showed grace. He showed us His love. Verse 6, he quotes David. I mean, he loves to quote David. Why? Because David was speaking of what Christ would do. David was just as much a prophet as he was a poet. He says that just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. I don't know how we can read. For me, if we read Romans chapter 4 and get out of it, we can work our way to heaven. We have a problem. Because there is nothing in this that tells me I can get righteousness by working. Even right here, he says, the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Not the man who God owes righteousness because of works, but apart, without works. That's actually the word that's used, without works. And then he quotes from uh, Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. Remember, we were lawless. Our deeds in that state have been forgiven. 
if you're a believer today, and those whose sins have been covered, these sins were covered by God Himself. In Christ Jesus, His blood covered our sins, cleansed us from all unrighteousness. Verse 8, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. When God did inventory of our hearts and our lives, He didn't account for our sin. He didn't put it on the ledger against us. It was wiped clean. Think about the, the mob. They always had a ledger, and that was always how they caught them. Remember, like... Al Capone got caught because he had a ledger showing every payment to everyone. Why? Because he was going to get his payment, and he didn't want to forget who owed him. And so, God could have been that way, but He wasn't. He he was using, He wiped the ledger clean. The Under the name Caleb Martin, there was a long list of debt that Christ when he died, took upon him. And now when the Lord looks at that ledger, it doesn't have any of those things anymore. It doesn't contain the sins of my past or the sins that I fall in and I have to repent and return. Verse 9. Is this blessing then... On the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? So he's asking a, a, a good question. Do the circumcised receive the blessing that, that has been given to David, to Abraham, and David through him? Or is it only, or the uncircumcised? Does, does it matter? Does God show difference to one or the other? Because we say, he says there in verse 9, faith was credited to to Abraham as righteousness. So, verse 10, he, the, the next question, so if, if faith was credited to him as righteousness, how then was it credited? Like, how, how was this righteousness applied to Abraham's ledger, our ledger, while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? So he's clarifying the question, narrowing it down. Verse 10 is where we're at. So he's narrowing the question down. And then he answers, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. So does circumcision save? Does Circumcision equal righteousness? So that leads to my second point. Circumcision is not a synonym for righteousness. Circumcision is not a synonym for righteousness. Many people use this very idea of circumcision as a reason to baptize infants. Because they say, well, circumcision was the Old Testament... Baptism is the sign of the New Testament. But that completely destroys this argument here. And anywhere else that Paul talks about. Why wouldn't Paul say in Galatians when he's arguing against the Judaizers that circumcision is no longer for the day? 
Why wouldn't he just say baptism took took its place, right? No, baptism is a sign. It should be a sign to us of what has happened, just like circumcision. But it does not equal circumcision. It doesn't, and circumcision was never meant to save. It was a sign of God's choosing of Israel, of the people, the children of, of Abraham. But it was a sign of something that should have been going on in the heart. We've already talked about circumcision of the heart. We saw that at the beginning, or in chapter 2. But verse 11, it says, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal. See, see that there? I'm not making this up. I'm not <laughs> trying to, to... So he, he, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had. That is so important. He had while uncircumcised. Do you know how many chapters it is and... Who knows, at least 20 years between the promise in chapter 12 and the sign of circumcision in Genesis chapter 17. So five chapters in at least 20 years, probably more like 30 or 40. And we don't know when Abraham left, but we know that um, Ishmael was... 13 when they were circumcised. So it was a long time. God gave the promises that we see and made covenant. Let, let's look there again. Turn back to Genesis because I don't want us to ignore what the Old Testament is showing us. So God has promised that He will give Him in verse 5, chapter 15 descendants so many that there will be as many as the stars in the heavens, like sand on the sea shore. Then Abraham goes about trying to have a child, his wife's preferred method. Then she realizes she doesn't like that. She gets jealous. And God did not have that there. So now, verse chapter 17, now when Abram was 99 years old, The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abraham fell on his face, and God talked with him. Isn't that the presence of God caused him to fall on his face? That experience with God. and But God talked with him. What... He was the friend of God. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Abraham's covenant has not ended. 
It's still being fulfilled today. This is not a, and that's what we're getting to it in, at the end of Romans chapter 4. It's an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Which ones? That's what we're getting at. We're going to see that. Think, keep that question in your mind. I will give to you and your descendants after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. God said further to Abram, Abraham, now, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. And it shall be a sign between me and you. Again, the same word, sign. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generation. A servant who is born in your house or who is brought in with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. So, what do we see here? God has actually already cut a covenant with him if you turn back. And I think I missed it. Oh, so after he made this promise in chapter 15, the Lord told Abraham to bring, uh, verse 9, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought all those to him and cut them in two, laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came upon the carcasses, and Abraham drove them away. Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and deep darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. They will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will judge the nations whom they will serve, and after that word they will come out with many possessions. Did that happen? Yes. God already has fulfilled that promise. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Did that happen? Yes, it did. And it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Your descendants... I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the river, the river Euphrates. So, God had already made a covenant with Abram in chapter 15. In 17, he gives him a sign of the covenant. The Holy Spirit is that sign today, the seal, the precursor to what it's going to be like in eternity. So, we can't look at the circumcision as a proof of salvation. It was a sign that they were the children of Abraham. It was meant to show their righteousness. But let me ask you a question. Of the people who came out of Egypt, how many lived to make it into the promised land? Do we know a number? Two. Two survived. Adults. We're not counting kids. But two adults out of millions, at least a million people, survived. So only two 
who were circumcised actually made it into the promised land. All the rest died in the wilderness. Why? Because they didn't believe. Okay, that's a side note, because I think it helps us understand what he's saying here. So, back to Romans chapter 4. So he received the sign of circumcision, verse 11, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised. God is giving the sign of circumcision not to say, well, if you have this, you're good. No, it was a sign of the faith which he already had. That God had already given him. Why? Why Why is it so important that we understand that Abraham had faith and righteousness before he was circumcised? Why is it so important? Right here it says, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised. Who does that include? Everyone in this room. Every single person here has the promise, Abraham has become our father, our forefather in the faith because he was righteous by faith before he was circumcised. That was God's divine purpose in this, right? God wasn't saying, well, I don't know if I should... Give him the sign of circumcision right away. Maybe I should wait to make sure he's a Christian first. You know, people that do that with baptism. I'm not sure that, that I should give it to him right No, God had a plan. His purpose was to show us today, through Paul, that our righteousness by faith has nothing to do with circumcision. And to show these Roman, most likely Gentiles and Jews, both together, the Gentiles are saying, we don't need to be circumcised. And some Jews are wondering, should we be circumcised? And Paul is saying, no. The faith of our father Abraham is for those who are uncircumcised. So that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised. That righteousness might be credited to them. Us. To the Jews. Whoever was reading it in Rome who were Christians. Throughout the ages. All who believed the promise of the Messiah who was coming. Who believed the, the promise that was made to Abraham. If they believed it. If it was true to the heart, it was accounted to them as righteousness. That's how Old Testament saints will be in heaven with us one day. Jesus didn't come, but they were looking to Jesus. They were looking to the Messiah who would come. We stand in a a time when we're blessed. The Messiah has come. We're looking back and saying, this happened. And... The incredible thing is, it happened without anything on our end. We didn't earn it. 
Verse 12, he says, And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but also those who follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. I just think about the Apostle Paul. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so Paul is about to give an example. He's going to give clear application. We're going to see how Abraham lived out his faith. But in the same way, we have to realize we're called to walk in the steps of Abraham. Maybe, maybe we need to be this William Borden. Couldn't we say that Abraham could have said no reserve, no retreats, no regrets? What? He left his family, no reserve. No retreats. He, he didn't get there and say, well, I'm, I don't believe God now. And I don't think Abraham got to the end of his life and thought, man, I regret following God. Well, I know he didn't. There's no way he did. He saw God's faithfulness. He saw his son, Isaac. And very likely, he saw his grandsons, as we'll see here. Abraham probably actually got to see the second generation of his family. He lived pretty, pretty long. Just crazy because he didn't have kids until he was 99. <laughs> so, anyways. Uh, maybe almost 100 by that point. Verse 13. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants, so it's the promise didn't stop with it. God didn't say, well, Abraham, this promise is to you only. No. If you go back to Genesis, he's saying to you and your descendants, all of them. To the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be the heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And this comes to my third point. God's promises are obtained by faith alone. So justification is actually a promise, but I, I wanted to keep that separate because I feel like he's kind of doing that. So in verse 13 we see that it was not through the law. The keeping of the law did not earn anyone righteousness or the promise And he, t he tells us why in verse 14. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and a promise is nullified. What does he mean? He says, if it was of the law, it would be, be void and nullified? Why? What context do we, uh, we have already that would say that? Because no one can keep the law. What? It says in, at the end of there of chapter 3, now apart from the law, okay, sorry, verse 19 of chapter 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. 
Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So when we see this, Paul is saying, look, the law was never meant for that purpose. The, The promise didn't come through the law. It came before centuries. If you wanted to go historically, Paul argues that in Galatians. Generations before the law was given, at least, probably what, 600 years before? Because they were in captivity for 400 years, and they didn't actually get the law until they had already gone out of Egypt. Till God had already delivered His descendants, did He give the law. God called them out way before He gave them the law. So every single person has violated God's law, so we couldn't be heirs. That would make the promise empty, nothing. Why? Verse 5, he further clarifies, for the law, or 15, sorry, for the law brings about wrath. But where there is no law, there is no violation. He's not saying, he is saying, yes, it brings about God's wrath because we are sinners, broken before God. But he's not saying that there is that if there isn't a law, there's no violation. It just is talking about legal terms here and how, how oftentimes, you know, if they don't post a, a speed limit, it's hard for our authorities to, well, if there wasn't a speed limit, then if you don't know the speed limit, how can they perse- prosecute you? That, that, that's not what he, he's not saying, well, there's, there's no way to be, to prosecute because, no, because God is putting His law in our heart. It's this specific word-for-word law that He's talking about here. And so, the Gentiles, we've already discussed this in chapter 1, the Gentiles had the law of God written on their heart. They're, they're without excuse. So, verse 16 For this purpose, or for this reason, it is by faith. Why? Why is it so important that it's in faith? In order that it may be in accordance with grace. Why? Why is it so important that it's of faith and of grace? So that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants. Not only those who are of the law but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of some of us. Is that what it says? No, the father of us all. If Abraham is our father, it's because of faith, not because we descended from Abraham. Physically speaking, we are the descendants of Abraham through faith In Jesus Christ, and he's getting there. We're going to see that at the end. It had to be in faith, and it had to be by grace, so that God could guarantee. This righteousness to all. The promise to all who would believe. 
Abraham's promises came apart from the law. And if, if, we, if we say it's of, of the law, then, we, then faith becomes unnecessary. That's, that's kind of what he's saying there. God wants it to be of grace. So interesting. We, we went from being not of fa- our father Abraham to being because of faith that God put in us. So we are now the descendants of Abraham. Does that nullify Jews who are following Christ? No. And I think some people want to say that, and I don't believe that's true. As it is written, verse 17, A father of many nations have I made you. Who? Who makes Abraham a father of many nations? God. It wasn't, Abraham wasn't going around like many kings. Let me find uh, multiple wives and just create a, a kingdom that's all my children. Right? He wasn't doing that. And even when he tried to follow Sarah's advice, it completely blew up in his face. Because it wasn't God's will. Express will. The father of many nations, in the presence of him who he believed. Even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Does not exist. I think this line here, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist, is super, extremely, extremely important for understanding the rest of this chapter. And it's extremely important to understand who we were. We were dead, it says in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians chapter 2. It is though we did not exist. Without Christ. And he's pointing to that. We see that in verse verse 18. So how how can we imitate? When we move to verse 18, he's really going into the story. How Abraham had faith. So how can we imitate his faith? How can we walk in his footsteps? One way we do that is we base our faith on the promises of God or the promise of God specifically here. It says, in hope against hope. Seems like paradoxical. Hope against hope. In hope against hope he believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. He hoped against what he knew was true. And we see that in verse 19. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body. Now as good as dead. Since he was about 100 years old. And the deadness of Sarah's womb. 
two dead things. Right? We're, I, I want to call you back to verse 17. Who gives life to the dead and calls into being that that does not exist. Creation out of nothing. And God did it in the, in the beginning. Can He do it now? He's still capable of doing that? Is He still able to bring about from the dead life? If He cannot bring life out of death, then we're hopeless. Because we were dead spiritually. And that is way worse than any physical or... Whether physical death or any physical ailment that we have. Because if God can't do something to our spiritual death, why in the world will we believe Him for the physical? But He believed in faith. He hoped against hope. In Hebrews chapter 11, it actually says this. We all love the Hall of Fame. Problem is, I don't think many of us would want to be in their footsteps like this. This is what it says at one point. Verse 12, it says, Therefore there was born even of one man, speaking of Abraham, in him, that man, as good as dead at that, <laughs> as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Abraham might as well have been dead. That's what the, the writer of Hebrews is saying. He was almost dead, and it says it here too. Abraham, when it comes to having children and life, could have been, should have been dead. There was no hope, but he hoped anyways. He heard God's word and said, I believe. So Abraham based his faith on God's promise. That God, you said it. That's why when he was asked to go to sacrifice Isaac, why do you think he wasn't afraid? God had already brought about life from death when he brought about the life of, Ab of Isaac in the first place. So when he's going up the mountain, he's like, God, I know. And that's what it tells us in Hebrews. I know that if, if I have to kill him, you'll raise him from the dead. He knew. He believed. I think it's interesting... Secondly, that he contemplated his own body. He didn't ignore the circumstances. He didn't let, my, my second point under this heading, he didn't let the circumstances dissolve his faith. The circumstances didn't define the promise of God. He didn't ignore it, acting like, well, that's no, that it's not really there. He knew the truth in the natural. He understood what the world would be saying. He understood that. But he said, I don't care. God said. 
All right, it says, without becoming weak in faith. So he didn't let it make him weaker. He still contemplated his own body. Now good is dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. But that, it didn't end there, right? We don't ignore the circumstances, whether it's physical, the spiritual well-being of someone we love. We don't ignore and say, well, they're saved, right? I'm not saying that we don't make positive confessions, but what I'm saying is we, we don't run around acting like nothing's going on. Do you think in our lives our faith would grow if we ignore the circumstances and just say, well, the circumstances are they're not actually that. Our faith grows when we think about, man, I should be dead. I should be this or my son or daughter or grandchild is way out in left field. But God can bring that back. God can restore that. He can restore from nothing, right? From nothing. Right there in verse 17, I'm going to keep coming back to it. He calls into being that which does not exist. We can trust God. Because though he contemplated his own body, verse 20 it says, Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. So he thought about it. I'm dead. Sarah's dead. In the natural, this is impossible. There is no way for Sarah to have a child, and there's no way for me to have a child. But, then he remembered the promise. He believed it. Verse 20 again, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew stronger in faith every day. That's how I look at it. Giving glory to God. I don't know if Abraham, as he's walking down the street, he's saying, thank God he's going to give me a, ba- a son. If his friends, who were the same age, were walking around with Abraham, you're crazy. You are nuts. How in the world could you believe that? How could you believe that you and Sarah could have a child? I mean, don't you see? We all have grandkids. We haven't had kids in 40 years, at minimum. You know? There is, Abram, you have gone off the deep end. We need to find a mental institution for you. I'm sure none of you have dealt with that before from family. But he, he, didn't, he didn't give up because the circumstances were bad. He didn't ignore the circumstances. He confronted them with God's word. And that's what we have to do. We have to confront our situations, our salvation, the salvation of those we love, the, this church, whatever is going on in our lives, we have to confront it with God's Word. What does His Word say? His Word is true. Either God is faithful 
or he's not. He can't be both. You know, I can... We were t- Megan and I were talking about this morning. With our kids, they naturally want to believe us, right? All of us, they may rebel against us, but they want to believe. If you say, after dinner, we're going to give you a cookie, they want to believe it, right? Or if you tell them when they're going to bed that, that night, well, tomorrow we're going to go to the pool or we're going to do this, and they get so excited. I don't know if any of you all remember that. Some of you are a little older. But they get so excited and they want to believe. And as long as we are faithful to our word, they will continue to believe us. The problem is we are not able to be perfectly faithful to our word. We didn't realize this or that would happen and we weren't able to keep our word. But God doesn't. God knows everything that's going to happen from here to eternity. He's known all that was past, all that is future. God is not going to be surprised by anything. So when God says, I will do something, we need to have faith like a little child. We need to get excited about the promise of God. I, it doesn't tell us in Genesis, but I'm pretty sure that Abraham was a happy man when he had that promise and he was holding on to it. I bet he was even happier when he heard that Sarah, when Sarah said, guess what, I'm pregnant. He probably looked at her like, what? And he was probably like running through the streets. Everybody was probably like, man, I haven't seen Abraham run that fast in years. <laughs> he was probably announcing it everywhere. And who got the glory? Did Abraham... No, God did, because everyone knew it was impossible. Naturally, it was out of the realm of understanding. We could not understand it. There's no way God made something come to life that was dead. He made something exist that did not exist. Abraham, it says, was fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. God hadn't failed him. From the moment that God called Abram to the moment he even changed his name and and he saw the faithfulness of God, God had always done what he said. Never once did Abraham wonder, man, I don't know if God can can do that. I'm sure there's in, in the natural, he struggled But he had seen God faithfully do what he had said every single time. God had showed himself faithful. If we'll trust God, we'll see that faithfulness every single time. He can create out of nothing. Bring life to the dead. Because he was fully assured and he he trusted the promise of God, it says in verse 22, therefore it was also credited to him as righteousness. His faith in the promise of God was credited to him as righteousness. His account held that truth in it. He was righteous before God. We we talked about red where it says, 
so that all men may be held accountable to God? I was thinking of what dad does. Sometimes they'll, they do their auditing at the end of the year. And so in that business, you, well, some businesses do this. I don't know if they have to do it, but the, the heads of departments have to come and account for everything they did, right? Okay, where, what's this money going to? What, why are we spending this money on M&Ms, you know? Uh, why, why did you go to Zaxby's 10 times last month on the, the company card or whatever? They, they, they have to give account for all that they do. And the incredible thing is our accounts are filled with the righteousness of God. The righteousness that has been credited to us through Jesus Christ. And that's what he's getting to here at the end. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him. Like, what would be the point of writing about it if it was just for him? No, no. But for our sake also. To whom it will be credited. We as the children of Abraham through faith, what does it say? As those who believe in him who raised Jesus, our Lord from the dead. See the deadness? Same thing, same picture. This is the complete fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. When Jesus was raised from the dead, we saw the eternal, everlasting covenant made to Abraham fulfilled and now ongoing. It did not become in reality everlasting until Christ was raised. It was in God's mind, yes. But when Christ fulfilled that, it was, that was the beginning of the eternal reign of the descendants of Abraham. And all in you, all the nations will be blessed. Jesus is that blessing. Jesus was a descendant physically through Mary of Abraham. And we, by faith in Jesus as our Lord, can too be raised from the dead. We can see the lost raised from the dead. Why? Because, verse 25, He who was delivered, Jesus Christ, over because of our transgression, and was raised because of our justification. Jesus Christ bore it all for us. He was raised from the dead, showing that power that God used in Abraham and Sarah to bring about the life of Isaac. And throughout his generations, God continued to show his faithfulness in spite of wickedness. In spite of unbelief, God continued with His plan. His plan was not thwarted by their sin. 
God continued to show favor and grace. And yes, He brought judgment. He brought death to many. But in the end, God completed the plan for which He created the world. His glory, His honor, His praise. Our righteousness is in Jesus Christ. And it's only by faith. And our salvation is only by faith. Is there a a work that we must do eventually? Yes. But it's not to earn our salvation. It's a demonstration of our love and delight in God. We don't want to be the same person anymore. God changes us. He gives us that new heart that we've already talked about many times. He's given us a new heart that we desire to follow God. And that's the thing. That heart was dead, spiritually dead. So if we look at somebody in our, in our circle of influence who we are like, man, they are, there's no way God can reach them. If He reached you, He can reach them too. Because we were both dead. They may look like they've been through a lot rougher time, but they're just as, you were just as dead because you grew up in the church. The deadness of our heart is not determined by how we sin. The deadness of our heart is due to our sin nature. We all need God to give life from the dead spiritually. That's why we can't convince someone to be a Christian. That doesn't mean we don't speak the truth. That doesn't mean that we don't faithfully ask, answer questions that people have. But the Holy Spirit, we can give the best answers, the best gospel presentation known to the world, verbally. But if the Spirit doesn't work to bring life from the dead, it won't matter one bit. That's why when we're sharing the gospel, we should be, you know, if we think we're going into a situation where we're going to have an opportunity, be praying. Lord, give me the words. Speak to this person through me. Not because I know I can't save them. They're dead. I am not able to do the impossible, but you can. And so when we think about the faith of Abraham, we see, I really do believe, this faith that is based on the promises of God, And a faith that doesn't let circumstances dissolve our faith. Abraham saw the circumstances, but in faith, in his great God, he defied the circumstances. He said, yeah, I know what's going on. God has already promised me something else. Something's going to have to change with those circumstances because God promised me something. God promised me this. So something's going to change. Is your faith like butter or diamonds? That's my question. Does your faith dissolve under pressure, under heat? Or is it like diamonds that actually get stronger when it comes under pressure and heat? 
Abraham is our example. His faith actually grew strong as he contemplated the promise of God. He contemplated the promise and the problem. And his faith was like, well, God is way bigger than this, so something's going to change. God will bring life out of death. God will create something out of nothing. And that can apply to our salvation, to healing. Why? Second, 1 Corinthians. We all have heard this. I thought I had it here. Maybe it's 2 Corinthians. Maybe it's 2. Once somewhere I can I'm overlooking it or something, but it says in one of the Corinthians chapter one that all the promises of God are in him, Jesus Christ, yes and amen. Jesus Christ, the descendant of Abraham by the flesh, who was raised from the dead. God did a lot of impossible works to bring about his plan. He brought in outsiders like Rahab and Ruth. Remember those stories? They weren't, they weren't Jews. They didn't grow up Jews, but God brought them in and they're, they're in the lineage of Christ. What a blessing. God can bring life out of death and something out of nothing. God is faithful. He can restore. He can deliver. He is not held back by the world we live in. The circumstances that we're facing. Does that mean that it's easy all the time? No. But, but that's not the thing. That, that's why it's so important for us to read the stories of men like Abraham. Stories of men like David. Men like Moses. Joshua and and just the stories, the Bible, is so important because it increases our faith. It, it encourages us that, yeah, these men weren't perfect, but God was faithful anyways. Because their faith was in God. God gave them righteousness. Fulfilled His promise. How many thousands of years, and I'm, I'm finishing, how many thousands of years did pass from the time that Abraham was promised that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him to the coming of Christ and his death and resurrection. That's a long, long time. But he had faith. 